example, right? Um, so I'm not sure um, how much of my question did you manage to to get before. Let's start. Let's just start again. Very well. Um, my question was for the um, discernment factor in breathing in and out, as in, is it done like an inner monologue? Am I asking the questions to myself? Because some some teachers uh, say that it's some thoughts are okay to have if they are related to the breath. Thoughts about anything else should be dropped, so to say. Um, what's what's your take on on that specific? I thing? imagine that some teachers would say it that way, and I can also imagine that students would hear it that way when it's said a different way, all right? The first thing that we have to understand is, is that other than some thoughts are wholesome and other thoughts are unwholesome, the best way to understand it is, is that the ability to think is okay. And so whatever thought there are, it's okay to have those thoughts. Because if you're critical and saying, oh, you should not have those thoughts, then you're going to have bad feelings with it. But rather, it's easier to understand that some thoughts are wholesome and some thoughts are not wholesome. And that if we can avoid the, wholesome, the unwholesome thoughts. And so sometimes we think a thought is wholesome when in fact it's unwholesome. Like you should not be having unwholesome thoughts. It's not a wholesome thought, that's an unwholesome thought. Right. But having thoughts of this thought's okay, everything is all right, no problems, then that would be a wholesome thought. So we uh, let us say it like this also that we could put things into three categories. One kind of category would be that we know absolutely without a doubt, we don't have to have much more investigation to tell that those kind of thoughts are in fact unwholesome. Mm. By and large, they're unwholesome. Thoughts about hurting yourself, thoughts about harming other people, thoughts about yelling at other people, thoughts of anger, all of those would be unwholesome thoughts. Thoughts of wanting something that we don't have. Those are easy enough to understand that they're unwholesome. So having thoughts then that are satisfied, satisfying, everything is okay, everything is fine. Those we could put into the wholesome category. Right? Leaving a very, very, very wide gulf of things for each student to figure out for himself are these hearts wholesome or not? Now, generally we get started with thinking that thoughts are wholesome simply because we're getting some sort of gratification out of those thoughts. But once we begin to see the dangers in those thoughts, that's when we begin to label them as unwholesome because they're dangerous. And that's when we can find the escape. So long as we can only find benefit in a thought, 
without seeing the danger in that thought, then we will continue to cling to it as if it were wholesome because we can't see the dangers. Once we begin to see the dangers in any particular thought, that means that now we can find an escape from that thought because we do see the danger in it. All right. Which means then that the scale or the boundaries that you're asking about is a sliding scale. As you develop in your practice, things that you thought were wholesome, now you're seeing as unwholesome and you don't do it so much. All the thoughts that you thought were unwholesome for a little while, you see that they're wholesome and then you go back and say, nope, I was right in the first place. They are unwholesome. OK, so a lot of it has to do with playing with, toying with, having a ball with rather than making rules about. Rules that you break and then you feel bad or you break them in purpose for rebellion or whatever like that. But the real way of looking at it is, is that when we see things as a rule. Then that's generally going to bring on unwholesome that rather than having rules or thoughts of criticism or this is better than that. We have the thoughts of everything is OK, everything's acceptable, and we start thinking of it as nurturing. A silly example of that is when a baby is first born, being nurtured and taken care of and all of that, when it does his first poopy about two days, three days after he's first born, everybody wants to know how big was it? Is it bright yellow? How much, you know, this, that, and the other thing and like that. But you fast forward five, six, eight, ten years, and that child is now 11 years old, and it takes a dump on the front room carpet. The parents are not going to be so nurturing anymore, are they? Yeah, that's true. All right, so that's what we mean is, is that times change, and the change is, is that things that used to be okay are now not okay. They're against the rules. And what we're looking for is to stop with all of the rules and start letting it's okay that we let out a turd from time to time. That is something, and that in fact, if this turd is unwholesome, then we can inspect it as unwholesome rather than labeling it as bad because it's a turd. Mm. Okay, so it's a kind of different attitude, and the attitude is a change from the victim by being victimized by the rules into being the winner. I'm the winner here. And just because this is a turd doesn't mean that I'm not okay. I don't have to go into bad feelings just because there's an unwholesome thought. But the sequence normally is, is that we have an unwholesome thought and then we have unwholesome feelings and we get stuck in a dialogue. Normal one of the ways that it happens, and in fact, it happens quite often this way that you could call it normal. And that is, is that we make a rule. Then we say that you've got to apply that rule right now. And then another part of us says, no, I don't want to do it right now. An easy example of that is someone is watching YouTube, a Dhamma dude, mm -hmm. maybe watching a Dhamma video. And he has the thought, oh, you ought to be meditating now. 
Yeah. Then he has the next thought. No, I don't want to meditate right now. I want to watch the video. And then the next thought, you really should be meditating right now, darn it. You're not meditating enough. And then we get into this dialogue, right? And so um, a better way of doing that dialogue would be to say, ah, yes, I should be meditating. Let me take a deep breath right now. And for a few moments, I'll do it now. But the, the normal old method of doing that is bringing up a rule you should follow and then saying, no, I don't want to follow that rule right now. And so we rebel against it. And then that rebel may start to feel guilty. There's no end to this conversation once the rule maker and the rebel get into it together. And we have both qualities inside of our mind. We carry around rules that we rebel against. Why do we do that? It's because we're not unified. We're not whole. We're not taking things from the wisdom perspective of deciding is that rule worth following now or is it worth throwing out now? So that we're no longer bound by the rules, nor are we bound by the reactions to the rules. This is what wakey wakey, this is what sati is all about now, is, is to see that the dialogues that we have inside keep us disjointed and uncomfortable. And that if we practice incorrectly, we're going to bring that criticism back into nurturing so that we can come out of even our questions. There's no question to it. I'm just going to relax. There's no end to the end of the questions. They'll keep coming so long as there's doubt, but we can relax right through that doubt into, never mind, I don't know everything, but I know enough to be yeah. happy right now. I understand. And questions do come up a lot. Um, you know, af after some years of, of meditating, you would think, oh, I, I've already seen plenty of teachers. I've read plenty of books. I've heard plenty of Dhamma talks. But questions still keep popping up. And sometimes it feels like running in circles. Well, let us say that there's no end to the questions when you've got your question machine turned on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now we have to start looking at this question machine which is in the sense of the hindrances, it, that it's a doubt. From another perspective, it is the desire and need to know. Now, that desire and need to know is definitely fostered heavy, big time in our society. That's why kids have tests in school. Why do we, why do we test kids? Why do we grade them? Why can't we just let the kids have fun? Hmm. Let the kid become really an expert in something that he likes to do instead of trying to shove hole him uh, into some job that the boss already knows exists. Oh, we don't want you to do what you're good at. We want you to do what we can remember that needs to be done. Yeah. So you see that that it, that it is the whole society is messed up like that. If kids could do what they wanted to do, each kid would become really good at something that he likes to do. 
through. And so let him go do that and have fun and enjoy his life. Right. So, so now that you have been taught that, oh, no, you've got to do whatever you're told to do. That means that you've got to be ready with all of this knowledge and preparation. So you've gotten into a knowledge gathering machine and it's time to turn that around into being a pleasure, uh, not seeking because we've got it. Uh, let us say just pleasure itself, not a machine or seeking or anything. Just have, have a joyful moment. Enjoy your minute. Enjoy this breath. You don't need to know anything to do that, or you don't need to know very much. Just enough. So whenever a question comes to mind, whenever that feeling of doubt, oh, I don't know how to do this, that, and the other thing, you do know and can remember that you do remember how to just relax and forget all about the questions. Yeah. That we don't have to have that critical thought that we can, in fact, know you're okay. You're already all right. You don't need to know the answer to that one. True. I've had some uh, success with that. Um, and one of my, uh, I wouldn't say problems, but some of the traps that I've caught myself into was uh, uh, looking for the perfect technique or for the perfect method or the perfect instructions what and what would make it perfect exactly exactly i mean in in that instant result yeah does that make it perfect exactly. would be instant result exactly okay. like a recipe just follow this 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 and this will happen well that's exactly what anapanasati is hmm. But you have to do it because it only works in this moment. It doesn't work for all time. You can't do something now and be fixed forever. Yeah. You can't pump up the tire now and expect it to be 32 pounds per inch forever. No, that tire is going to go flat again, especially if it's got holes in it. Right. But even if it's got no holes, it's going to go flat. But we expect things to be settled and things are never settled. That's what the Buddha's teaching of Anicca is all about. Nothing is finished. Nothing is, in fact, uh, everything is in process. Keep watching the process. So, yeah. in that regard, a perfect practice would be one that works right now. But not five minutes from now, because you're not there. But five minutes from now, when it is the now, it works again. One so a lot of this has to do with repetition, 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 practice. Yeah. This is why I... psychology doesn't work. Because a, the student can go into the psychologist's office and get a perfect method. Right then and there, he is free from his sorrows and suffering. But he has to go back and do that again. He has to remember what the psychologist said over and over again. And yeah. he does, he forgets all about it and it goes back to the way that he was. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of perfect techniques because they work immediately, but they don't work permanently. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, if you think about it like that, a movie that's perfect 
could only be a photo. It couldn't be a movie if it's perfect because once the first frame is perfect, if you change that frame, you've changed your perfection. We don't live in a in a in a uh, in a picture. We don't live in a photo. We live in a movie. Everything is constantly in in motion. Sometimes the camera is out of focus. Sometimes it's focused on the wrong thing. True. But that's all right. We live in a movie. Watch what's going on. Everything is constantly changing. If you can understand that, then we don't have to deal with doubt because doubt always has to do with well, what was in that one particular image. Sorry, that image is gone. We're in a different part of the movie now. <laughs> I understand. Um, one thing about uh, Anapanasati, and I've been listening to uh, Ajahn Yanamoli Tero. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm-hmm. He's a kind of a younger monk uh, stationed in Serbia, I think. None of that is important, um, but what he said kind of uh, got me wondering. Um, he said, in order to do Anapanasati correctly, one has to have right view, and you have right view when you're a Sotapana, when you're a stream enterer. So until then, you're kind of... Well, all of that is absolutely true and indisputable beyond the shadow of a doubt. It doesn't sound like it's a method. Yeah, not as a method, but what he said, he said something like, until you get to stream entry, until that happens, uh-huh. um, you have to, you cannot accept an answer for correct, like, this is what I've been doing now, it's perfect, or what method I have been following, I should, I should just keep following it, following it blindly. He says that the uh, discernment factor of always trying to discern further and further and further and... Um, Not further and further at all, but now and now and now. now. And now. Yeah. Not further and further. But now and now and now, is this thought wholesome? Mm. Is this thought wholesome? That, in fact, is the uh, um, the progress of the stream enterer. That by the time someone is fully in uh, the stream, then the ans- in that moment, then the answer is yes. This thought is wholesome. Okay, but there is a practice that go that goes through uh, and for the soda pond, and there's actually seven steps listed, and there and we can think of it as the fruit of the soda pond versus the the path of the soda pond, and part of what he's talking about is the path, and part of it is the fruit, and he is not being very clear technically as the distinction between the two. Okay, so. Um, the way that we can think of it then is the first step on the path, the very first step that is noble, super mundane, the first step of Sotapan is when the, uh, which is actually an attitude change. 
And that attitude now is no matter what happens in the mind, I can clean it out and come back to this present moment. In other words, I am now absolutely completely free from doubt about this present moment. That no matter what's happening right now, I may be in the hospital watching my grandmother die. I may be uh, uh, locked up. I may be in hand, be having handcuffs. I may be being wrestled to the ground. Okay, I may be sitting with the doctor while he's telling me I've got a testicle freeze or something. Whatever it is, I can handle it. That's the attitude. No matter what comes down, I can handle it. That's the first step of soda pond, which means that no matter what the mind gets in it, I can throw that stuff. That doesn't mean that you did throw it out. It means that you are no beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can throw it out. Because let us say like this, you're sitting here in the back of the police car. The police have just thrown you handcuffed in the back seat of the car and they've walked off doing something else and you're waiting for them to come back. How are you handling this situation? If you're having thoughts of, I can handle this, I can handle this, this is okay. When the cops come back, I'll handle them correctly. Okay, that in fact, if you had had that thought before you got handcuffed, you probably wouldn't have gotten handcuffed. The reason that you were hand getting handcuffed is because the co cops had determined you weren't handling things very well at that moment. That's why they put handcuffs on people is because they resist. And they'll put handcuffs even on an eight or a 10 year old if the 10 year old or the eight year old resist. Okay. Because even an eight year old knows how to rebel. They learned that at the age of two. Yeah. Right. So are you going to let the two year old inside you handle the situation badly? Or are you going to know that you can wake up and handle things correctly? That's the first stage of the Sotapan, one out of seven. That's a high hurdle for most that, in fact, you could say you could go so far as to say in the suttas do that not only is this knowledge that no matter what happens, I can clean my mind out. I do not have to be suffering right now. I can come back and see things the way they really are and handle things correctly. That knowledge. The Buddha says it's super mundane. It's not worldly. Mm -hmm. It's a step on the path. It is noble. It's already a stage of Sotapan. And the kicker is, is that it is not uh, an attitude that's held by ordinary people. That before you have that, you're in the attitude of, I don't like this. This is too much for me. Yeah. Mm hmm. And we fall back into the victim's position. So basically what we're saying now is the first step of Sotapan is to change our position from being victimized by circumstances in our own mind into becoming the champion. I can handle this. That's why I put it out there for all, oh so often for the students, this whole change of attitude, because that's the major first step is a change in attitude, but it requires skills because you've got to be able to get your mind cleaned out over and over again before you develop the attitude that you can clean your mind out. 
right now. As badly as you need to have it cleaned out right now, it's not, but I can't, I can do this. Let me sit here and take a few deep breaths and relax and think about some beautiful thoughts while I'm sitting here in the backseat of this car. And pretty soon my friends will come and we'll have a ball together. My friends in blue. Who wrestled me to the ground and handcuffed me because I didn't see them as friends the first time. When I reflect upon that, I can say, hey, look what I've gotten myself into because I could not clean out my mind in time. But I can clean it out now. Okay, so this is the first step of soda pop. And that um, mostly the suttas talk about it in the sense of the fruit of the path. Now, the fruit of the path is, is that not only, ha uh, the, so the, so the uh, the the path or the first step is the knowledge of waking up. I can handle this, but then the fruit of the path is I can handle this. That's the fruit. The fruit is yeah, I've got this wired. Both of them are um, oriented towards uh, attitude. Now along the way, we develop a few things, like jhana and knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path, which it means that we are no longer in any doubt about how to practice. Now, that first step means that there may still be some doubt. I know that I can clean my mind out. I just don't have it cleaned out right now. Okay. But there's a, the third step is, is that when we have the knowledge and vision of what is the path, then that means without a doubt, I know I can clean out my mind. I don't have any doubts about how to do it. I got the path. I got it 100% done it so many times over and over again that I know without a doubt, without a doubt, that this is the right path to take. Anapanasati, take a deep breath, relax, smile. You got it wired. And then we start with that knowledge, which is, by the way, kind of a middle point or a fulcrum in the practice, in the sense that this is halfway into Sotapal. This is all uphill until now. In the sense of taking effort, taking effort, taking effort. Okay. That the knowledge of I can clean out my mind still requires the effort to actually do it. Okay. So a long step four comes is when we've reached this middle point, when we have, without a doubt, we've got that path. This is where it's going to start to be tested, that doubt. And that is, is that when we begin to now see, because of investigation, our own wrongdoing, we begin to see the mistakes that we're making along the way. Now we're actually quite capable of seeing unwholesome thoughts much better than we could before especially with the results of those thoughts. So when we've done something wrong and then we get caught at it, now we're willing to make amends. We're, make, we're willing to make up for it, okay? So this is where step four comes in, is when we come in with the statement of, hello, darkness, my old friend. Okay, I'm beginning now to really confront my wrongdoing that in the beginning, I didn't want to see because I had an attitude. And the attitude is, is that 
there's nothing wrong with me. Those thoughts are okay. You know, and we justify our own wrong behavior. And we do that by self-deception. We lie to ourselves. And so this is the stage along the way of the soda pond as to where he's beginning to look at the fact that he lies to himself sometimes. He tries to get away with things and he recognizes now he can't get away with anything. This is where, um, uh, and in fact, the example in the uh, the sutta is when the monk goes to his teacher or to a trusted elder to confess. That in fact, in the paddy monk, every time that they do the paddy monk, they do it uh, with uh, a, a ceremony that includes a confessional. Where uh, and in fact, the day before the uh, the Paddy Monk is when the elders uh, are out and about making themselves available for the monks to come for them to actually confess what they've done wrong for the past couple of weeks. So we begin to keep track of that. In other words, if you want to actually become free from dukkha, isn't it a good idea to start watching it and looking at it and seeing what it is? Okay, but we have to have um, complete eradication of the doubt about this path because we do still have the doubt of, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> that's, that's too much for me to look at right now. This is the kind of attitudes that we have, uh, and we come to the point of being able to get over that. Once that uh, happens, now we're on vigil for Dukkha. Now we're really willing to see it. We're willing to see the old darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Well, I'm glad to see you again because it gives me now an opportunity to deal with you happily because before I didn't. And so this is a step five of when the student begins to really pay attention to the Dhamma. The example that's given actually is twofold. One example is, is that though the monk is busy doing uh, his monthly duties, like, for instance, sweeping. Still, his number one job and the only thing that he really cares about is the Dhamma. He's glad to hear the Dhamma. He wants to talk about the Dhamma. He wants to hear what other people think. Uh, when he's on, on his own, when he's thinking, he's thinking wholesome thoughts about the Dhamma. We become kind of dedicated to the Dhamma. Okay. The other example, then, is the example of a mother cow who has a new calf, and though she is grazing and eating, she's paying 100% attention to that calf. She actually stands in the field so that she can protect the calf from the most dangerous. Say the woods are only 100 yards in that direction, but as far as the eye can see over here, there's no woods. Therefore, the mother cow is going to stand between her calf and the woods. Okay. And she's still grazing, but she's paying. She's got a, what we, in our uh, uh, language, we would say she keeps an eye on that calf. In other words, she's watching. This is how we mean also by ourselves. We're watching sure. for any dukkha. We're watching for any mishap. But we're also doing it from the perspective of looking at the Dhamma, seeing everything as Dhamma. And so as we 
graduate with that, there's a, the additional factor. Number six is added, and that is, is that we become really eager for the top. We see the Donna everywhere because we're looking for it everywhere. We really want to see it. We're very happy to find Duca. Ah, got that one. Okay. We become sort of a, a, a Dama cop in a very, very yeah. happy way. And so then the seventh item on the list is delight. When we become completely delighted with the Dama. When we're always on vigil and investigation for Duca and we can't find any of it, though hard we look. And we're delighted. No more. So that's the full fruit of the soda pond is delighted at the Dhamma. That middle point is when knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path is completely understood and there is no doubt left. But you can see the progress now is for focusing more and more on the dukkha, especially number four, of being happy to be caught out. To see everything that we do wrong as a learning experience rather than a punishment opportunity. That everything is done in the teaching of the Buddha with the idea of rehabilitation, not punishment. And yet our society is built upon punishment. If you do wrong, you get punished. Therefore, you learn those rules. So when you do something wrong, you punish yourself. And so you say, wait a minute, I'm going to lie to myself so I don't have to punish myself. And we're taking all the punishment out and all the rehabilitation is there too. Can you imagine America having a prisons that were geared towards rehabilitation? <laughs> no, but I do remember one documentary in India about, uh, well, I think it was Goenka himself that went to prisons and taught the prisoners. I've actually done a retreat with Goenka in a prison. Really? Mm -hmm. How was that? Mm -hmm. It was an exercise, in, uh, but it, the students got into it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did, I did see, uh, like, the documentary ended on a positive note, even, uh, even though there were some hard criminals over there. Um, like, after the retreat, after practicing, you could see how, how their minds changed and how they incline more towards doing good and stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think the most challenging and challenging, I say here with a big asterisk, I, I, I realize it's an unwholesome thought. Um, what has been uh, the biggest exercise for me in my practice was um, finding the balance between letting go and um, kind of everything is okay, everything is fine, and giving enough effort. This balance, finding it, was has been uh, not so easy, so to say. In some sits, I really get the balance. In some sits, I, I do nothing, and I kind of wallow in, in, in dullness sometimes. So. This has been a challenge for me recently. Well, the challenge is that you want to punish yourself for failing at something. Hmm. It's, it's a challenge because you've got a benchmark or a rule. Yeah, yeah. I, I realize 
when I'm saying the question, I realize how it sounds, and I and I and I get it. Uh, Let us say that the mind is dull. Okay, if you accept that the mind is dull, then that's okay. The mind is dull. Generally, when the mind is dull and thoughts of the mind being dull, the first thing that happens is a deep breath, and now the mind's not so dull anymore. But if you hate the dullness and you say, oh, I'm not dull. Yeah, yeah. And then you sit there in dullness. Mm -hmm. But if you can recognize it. So if you can recognize the dullness, then you can do something about it. In fact, the Buddha's got quite a number of things to be done. One is taking a deep breath. Number two is rubbing your arms. Number three, if you can, wash your face or wiping your face. Then the next one would be to stand up. Hmm. Then to walk. Well, this is not a hard dullness. This is more of a subtle dullness to use TMI terms. It's the the I can I I know the breath is in and out is going in and out. I I'm staying with it, but the sensations become painter and uh, harder to follow, so to say. And it, yes, I have and this the dullness of... is not taking control. Mm. And the taking of control in that regard would be to intentionally take a deep breath, even while dull. But then would the, the guy would say, well, I'm too dull to take a deep breath. And then I say, yeah, gotcha. You got to take the effort to take that deep breath. So that's the Other, right effort, I say. Right, that's the right effort to take the uh, that deep breath and the right effort to throw the thoughts out like I'm not dull and to recognize, yes, I am dull. Let me do something about it because I know what I can do about it. I can rub my arms. That's amazing. Rubbing yeah. one's arms really does stimulate things. Just rubbing the arms like this is all it takes. Do it now and recognize that, hey, just by doing that, you're waking up a little bit. Another one is taking a deep breath. So uh, that's the way that we can we can do it. But if we say, oh, no, I can't do it, then we're just stuck in the dullness. So. These are the ways of, of recognizing that, uh, and by the way, dullness is a hindrance. If it we is. can see the hindrance as it is, then we can do something about it. And generally, we got ourselves into the dull state because we weren't doing the things that if we were naturally do them already, we wouldn't have gotten dull, like taking deep breaths. Um. That's how we get dull. Or the other one is sitting too long, but normally the body gets discomfort before the mind gets dull. This is another thing uh, that's different uh, about real anapanasati practice is the issue is to keep the body comfortable, even if it requires movement. But the Gawanka and the tough guys uh, with the Mahasi and all of that, they want you to sit still for a long, long time, which invites dullness. This is much more of a dynamic meditation, but not nearly as dynamic as uh, uh, Rajneesh or Osho. (laughs) 
I'm not familiar with Osho, but yeah. So, well, they're the same guy who changed his name, Rajneesh in the beginning and Osho later. Uh, so we can take up uh, Anapanasati with the taking of the deep breath and being here now and being actively engaged in our meditation. This is one's right effort, kind of like putting skin in the game. But a lot of Western meditation has the idea that, oh, you're supposed to sit for a long time. The body gets into pain, but that's okay because the mind gets dull. We want it to get dull. Because all kinds of magical powers can come to you with a dull mind. Don't they say that? Something like that. Not sure. But I've... I've been trying to uh, have a short sit, like half an hour before going to sleep, uh, just to explore that uh, that mind state. Um, instead of being negative about it and and judging, I, I've been trying to like when I when I notice that I'm tired, uh, sit and see what I can do about it, how I can discern it, and how how to give right effort to it. So, well, I just gave you the list. The list is yeah. not mine. The list is in the suttas. Number one, yeah. take a deep breath. Number two, rub yeah. your arm. Number three, rub your face. <laughs> Number four, move your body, stand up, yeah. and then yeah. walk. Those are the uh, the ways that you can handle that, uh, that tiredness. There's really nothing to it. Yeah. But in yeah. fact, at Watsu and Mok, they tell the students about this so that if their sitting is too much, it's okay for them to stand, mm. but if you prefer to do walking meditation, yeah, go. They used to let them just do it in the back, but now they ask people who want to do walking meditation to go outside. But they still uh, limit it to, I think, the longest sitting they have is 30 minutes. Okay. Where others, they start at 45 and go for an hour and then longer. Mm. And there's no reason for people, especially in the beginning, to sit for that long a period of time, that really the skills that we're wanting to develop are not skills for sitting in seclusion for a long time. Nobody wants to actually live their life like that. Hmm. Yet we want to develop the skills for living an active life. Right. So, so that we can remember that I can handle this Rather than avoiding it so that I don't have to handle it, I'm going to be living a life to where I might have to handle this. And yeah, I can handle it. Uh, to what extent would you say that um, seclusion and restraint from sensuality is important? As I see some teachers are emphasizing these points, uh, even though if you're a lay person, uh, like they say, if you if you don't have at least five precepts or eight precepts or abstain from uh, sensual st stimulation from all kinds of things, uh, like that's when you make the the most progress. So to say, that's when yeah, I, I bet there's I bet there's a rule maker in there someplace. That sounds yeah. like a whole bunch of rules. Yeah. The Buddha did not talk about it like that. 
that when he says it and the way that the sutras talk about it, it says, go to a hut, an empty hut, go to the foot of a tree, go to the forest, go to a pile of straw. But the point is, is to get away from other people. Because when you're away from other people, you're away from the influences of the world. And therefore, now the only influences the world has upon you are the influences you brought in there. Mm. And that's where we need to take a look at it, is when we're in seclusion. Now, the question is, how much seclusion? And the answer has to do with circumstances rather than a perfect way to do it. Okay, in other words, you want to find ways of being in seclusion often so that you can practice being here now and then go back into the world when you find need for it. But then you come back again. So it's in and out and in and out and back and forth and back and forth. But some people have the opportunity to leave the world and stay out of it for a long time. But then they're in a different world, the world of the what? Okay, so uh, some of them even leave that world and go to the world of the back of the what? Hmm. So finding seclusion. So yes, some people are able to get seclusion. And in that regard, you could say the more the better, but there's no reason for you to, let us say, sit here with me in a conversation and pine over your lack of the ability to have seclusion, because yeah. that's an unwholesome thought. Hmm. Better is to enjoy the seclusion that you do have when you have it and to seek it out, to get away from it all, literally, so that you can spend that time again getting away from it all hmm. mentally. First, we get away from it all physically or literally, and now we're getting away from it all mentally by remembering, I don't have to think about that kind of stuff. I can just sit here and enjoy what's happening right here in front of me, right here now. So we start bringing the reality because the reality right now is everything is okay. Yeah. I mean, sitting in the back seat of a police car with your hands handcuffed behind you is okay. There's nothing really wrong with that. It's not a terrible situation. I can find a way of being comfortable. Okay, so if we can find comfort when we're alone, that's the whole point is to find a way of being comfortable and happy hmm. in this moment. And we keep practicing that over and over again until we get good at it. And then we can start dealing with other people comfortable and happy because they cannot breach our new fortifications. What are our fortifications? Well, sati, investigation, and effort, and attitude, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. That's our fortifications now, which is also skills that we've developed so that they can't touch you. They can't touch me. Ah. Uh. That's a wonderful state of mind to have. Well, it's an attitude. Yeah. And you can cultivate that attitude. Yeah, you can do that. Mm. It's not a wonderful state that you don't have. You can do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's you can do that. something to get into the future. You can do it right now. Now, right now. 
practice right now. Know that you can do it right now, and that'll be there for you next time. And you say, hey, I did it before. I can do it now. I'm getting good at this. And pretty soon you're on that way to that first step of soda pop. So that no matter what happens, I can take care of it. Awesome. Um, you said that at the beginning, there is no need for uh, for longer sits. Uh, but I've gotten into a habit of sitting for at least an hour or so, and it has... No, wait a minute. You didn't say it the way that I would like for you to have said it, so let's back up. And that is, is that you're in the habit of enjoying sitting for an hour? Yes, yes. Um, okay, well, that's the whole point then. Yeah. Never mind the sitting for an hour. Never mind you the enjoy you enjoy it. And you yes. actually enjoy yourself for an hour. Wow. Yeah. Like, the more I do it, the more I enjoy it. And I guess that's a, that's a good sign. That's the whole point, you see, is, is to allow yourself to break those rules of you're not supposed to enjoy that much, that long. We've got work to do here. Yeah. <laughs> our work is cut out for us. Yeah, our work is cut out for us. Yeah, I see it cut out. Let it lay out. Let that pattern say over there in the corner. I'm going to just sit here and have a ball. <laughs> awesome. Yes, that's the whole idea is, is that it is um, the way that you have been talking about long sittings is because they're somehow desirable. Hmm. or that there is a rule about it, or that the longer you sit, the better off you are somehow. Yeah. Seeing it as a badge of honor, so to say. A badge of honor, exactly. Well, that badge of honor and those handcuffs, what are you going to do about them? <laughs> because that badge of honor, can you say, well, if I can sit there on the floor for an hour, can I sit in the backseat of this squad car for an hour and enjoy it? That's why we want to sit for an hour, so we can learn to enjoy ourselves, no matter what situation that we're in, so that when we get ourselves into the tough situations, we can enjoy that too. Because tough is just an, an attitude anyway. Hmm. Very well. Um, this last one is... Mm, like mm, My last question would be... Um, starting off with the suttas, for example. Uh, I have read some of them randomly, um, but where would you suggest that a beginner starts? I would suggest for a beginner to read a whole lot about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Hmm. I have his... start reading yeah. the suttas. And the things that I would recommend beginning first would be uh, Handbook to Mankind, uh, hmm. the ABCs of Buddhism would be the place to get started. After that, all over the place. Possibly winding up with the heartwood of the bow tree. Okay. And then you can handle the suttas because you know what the suttas are actually teaching. Hmm. As opposed to reading a sutta and be confused about what they're talking about. Okay. 
Then let's get Pikaboo Dasa because his his language is more understandable. And also you'll begin to see that a lot of the stuff that I teach comes right out of his yeah. um, teachings. For sure. Uh, and so putting it together that way, then when you're reading the suttas, you'll know which way to read it. Because hmm. otherwise, Petitra Samapada in the suttas can become quite confusing. Yeah. But if you understand it from the perspective of how the mind works. Or another one would be Nibbana. A lot of people have a really weird idea about a lot of these poly words. And Buddhadasa makes sure he's got a little book by the name of Nibbana for Everyone. Now, yeah. that just, I mean, that slams that book quite closed, doesn't it? There's nothing to it. But in fact, when there is nothing to it, that is Nibbana. <laughs> when everything is cool. When you don't have two things rubbing together in friction with the doubt and the worry and the flurry, you just stop doing that, and now you've got nibbana. In our language, we use language like chill, baby, or cool off. Exactly. And that's all the word means. That's how it was in, in the original Pali. Uh, food with nibbana because it's too hot right after it's been cooked. Or that wild animals are not nibbana, but once a dog is able to just lay on the floor when strangers come up, that dog's nibbana. He's cool now. He doesn't have to respond to his um, uh, territorial instinct. Hmm. Would you say that the word, the English word uh, enlightenment is a bad translation for, for nibbana? Um, actually, the word enlightenment has nothing to do with Nibbana directly, it's an only indirectly. But uh, there, the word enlightenment has really nothing to do with Buddhism at all. That enlightenment, in fact, is a social, political, scientific, religious, revolutionary issue yeah. from hundreds of years ago. Uh, and that we can say then that enlightenment has a bit of scientificness in the sense of waking up to the reality of the situation. So let's use the word enlightenment, but we have to understand how we're using it, because mostly when people use the word enlightenment in English, they use it as magical. Mm. That Western Buddhism is highly magical. And they have a magical enlightenment and a magical nibbana rather than just chill, baby. That's all there is to it. So the way to look at enlightenment is two ways around the word light. Number one is the light of day. Put some daylight on it. Shine a light on it, which has to do with taking a look, investigation. So that kind of enlightenment is one's right uh, investigation, one's right view. Right view is enlightenment itself mm. by definition. And then there's another definition for enlightenment. Light means not heavy. Take a load off. Lighten up. Brighten up. Gladden up. That's the other word use for the word which means that once we see the burden, once we see the danger, once we see the dukkha, 
we can let it go. Drop it away. Okay, hang on a second. Kitty, Christianima. Just talked about the dogs. They ruined Obama. Now they are not. They're <laughs> not hot. <laughs> Very well. So, um, yeah, well, that's how life is. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. Some, sometimes we feel like a nut, sometimes we're cool, sometimes we're hot. Start paying attention to that. Because only when we pay attention to it, do we have the capability of doing anything about it. This is why that point of uh, uh, hello darkness, my old friend, become friends with the part, the worst parts of you, become friends with that. Because that means now that you can nurture yourself Rather than, oh, I'm going to divide myself and the bad half's got to sit over there while I nurture the good half. No, I'm mm. going to nurture everything. Everything is okay. Yeah. And by seeing the, the bad half, we can actually look at it to see what's actually there. It may be not as bad as we thought, or maybe just a tweak or two, just by inspection. Right, so sort of become um, friends with the hindrances. Mm -hmm. or with the aggregates is not seeing them as something to just get rid of something bad, something to push from, but really understand. Well, I would hope not because you are the aggregates. I mean, the, uh, the whole point of the teaching of the aggregates is to teach no self. Mm -hmm. There is no self in the body, yeah. but that doesn't make the body bad. There is no self in the feelings, but that doesn't mean the feelings are bad. Exactly. There's no self in consciousness. There's no self in perception. There's no self in your memories banks. There's no self there. Where does the self then come from is the activities surrounding those five aggregates. What do those five aggregates do then that comes up with a self or dukkha? It would be very much like this. Think of the five aggregates as like all the parts to an automobile spread all over the front yard. Hmm. That there is no car there, just car parts. Yeah. But once the car parts are put together, now the car can go transportation. Okay. So you can think then that the five aggregates, there's no self in the five aggregates, but to get together in combination. From time to time, when your things are operating in a certain way, selfishness comes up. Mm. But selfishness is not inherent within the five aggregates. But a lot of people are confused. They think of themselves as I am the body. Look how many industries operate off of that. Yeah. The clothing industry, the fashion industry, uh, the sports industry. Yeah. Everything is wrapped up in I am the body. Right, even the medical industry, especially the uh, Botox and uh, uh, cosmetic surgery part, I am the body. And so when we recognize it like that, the answer is, is that no, you're not the body. At best, you're just a rider. You're just the you're you're not the transportation and you're not the transport. You're the rider. I, I am not the body. The body can be ugly. That's okay. 
A beautiful soul can ride an ugly body, <laughs> except that it's not a soul either, <laughs> yeah. just an attitude. <laughs> I also like the word spiritual is misleading in, in these kinds of uh, like uh, spiritual and meditation are put together. So the in word Western. spirit works basically means air. A yeah. spirit is an apparition in the air. That when you uh, expire, the spiritual, that's breathing in and out air, that's that's spiritual. But I think they kind of associated with the more Christian enduring soul. Let, it, let us say magic. Mm, magic. Magical yeah. belief, right. But there is spiritual. The spirit is, is that you're going to stay alive if you take this next breath, if you breathe in the Holy Spirit. And if you don't breathe in the Holy Spirit, you're going to be dead within three to five minutes. Maybe even less. <laughs> Maybe even less. Maybe you will expire. What does expire mean? It means out of breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. So that's where, so keep, when you use the word spiritual, keep coming back to the breath, the breath of life, staying alive. That's what the spirit is, the spirit of aliveness. Life itself. That, that is what spirit, not some spook or, or ghost or apparition like that. Some foggy bottom. No, we're talking about life itself. So people who appreciate life, are spiritual people. Awesome. People who are religious are often non-breathers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. Okay, Alec, well, let's finish now. I think that we've gotten something quite useful out of this. Indeed. Uh, thank you very much, Namorado, for, for your time and uh, I'm going to go again through this video and dig up some of the stuff that we talked about. So, okay. Excellent. All right. We'll Thank see you, you soon. Have a nice day. Bye bye. You have a nice minute. You have a nice have moment. A nice right moment. now is all <laughs> I can give you. <laughs> awesome. Take the care. future, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.